0: Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. Stand with me this morning, if you would, one more time. I'm reading today from John chapter 3. Again, it's the same passage as we had last week. John 3... Verses, I'm going to read the first eight verses again. John writes, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Father, these are Your words inspired to Your people. They are a light into our feet and a lamp into our path. I pray that You would grant us revelation and understanding in your word, that you would touch my mind to think, my tongue to speak, and all of our hearts together to receive your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, continuing on in our series, in part two of looking at John chapter 3, the first part of John 3. And just some observations this morning about John 3. Number one is, you absolutely must be born again to see the kingdom of heaven. Without the regenerative power of God's spirit and act and work, that sovereign work of God in our lives, we will be lost. God must cause us, do the miracle of the new birth. We love to talk about miracles and God is a miracle-working God. I believe that God still today raises the dead and heals the sick and opens blind eyes, heals cancer. God does these things. But there is no greater miracle than the miracle of regeneration, of the new birth, of God causing us to be born again, bringing new life to us. It's not as clear in an English translation, but in that text, to be born again, doesn't just mean to be born a second time but it means to be born from above that's that's the connotation that's the idea is that I am born of God I am born from above and I must be born again the second observation is that the teaching of the new birth is not new in John 3 Jesus indicates that Nicodemus should have understood the idea and we talked about this last week Nicodemus should have caught on to what Jesus was teaching him about new birth, or new life, or new creation. Those ideas are saturated in the Old Testament. All Jesus is doing is is expanding the idea that already existed in the Old Testament, scriptures that Nicodemus knew well, and he's applying it to the way that believers receive new life in Jesus our Messiah. Jesus is the, the difference maker now. It's the introduction of Christ, the Messiah as a way to be born again. The third observation is that new life in the Holy Spirit unites us to the person of Jesus Christ. We are in Christ. We abide in Him. John writes, no not in the Gospel of John, but John also writes the epistle of 1 John, there's 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and he writes these books, and he writes in 1 John 5, as a letter, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. But by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. It's not hard to live for God it's not a burden to follow the precepts the laws of God it's not a burden John says his commandments they're they're not burdensome for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God Now, I read all that because I want you to see how faith and belief and victory over the world are tied together with being born again, being born from above, born of God. That is spiritual birth. But the idea of being born again, as I said, is not even introduced in John chapter 3. It's... Already back in chapter 1 that we've already talked about in John 1, But to all those who received the hymn who believed in His name, He gave the right to become the children of God. It's language that has to do with being born of God. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but the will of God. We are born again of God according to the will of God. We are born again in His Spirit talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament is full of men and women who walked with the Lord. Love reading the Old Testament and all the stories that go on in the Old Testament. There's some there's some extraordinary things, some spectacular things that happen in the Old Testament. We read about Abraham and Moses and Elijah and David and Deborah and Esther and countless others. And we stand in awe of the faith that made these people legendary. I mean, these we're talking about these people thousands of years David lived 3,000 years ago some of these other ones before him and yet we still talk about their stories we we stand in awe of the faith that they had but what they did not have was the baptism of the Holy Spirit they were still used by God to fulfill His purpose and the Holy Spirit was active in the Old Testament very active sometimes I think people get an idea that the Holy Spirit wasn't theres. like no the Spirit, like if you read the text, I did a study of this about six months ago, and to, to look how many times it talks about the Spirit of God, that is the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of God that is at work uh, in the Old Testament, but the New Covenant in the New Testament, with the promise of the outpouring of His Spirit upon all people, where the Spirit dwells inside of us, where the Spirit abides inside of us, that could not happen until the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's how we know this in John 7, which we'll eventually get to in this series. Jesus said, Whosoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The water is just, the idea of water is starts in Genesis 1, excuse me, in John 1. It is in Genesis 1, but John in John 1 is echoing the idea of the chaos and the water. It goes all the way through. It's there in John 3. It's in John 4. The woman at the well uh, talking about water where, that you'll drink and never thirst again. It's all through John, this idea of water. John's grasping onto this metaphor and using it. And in John 7, 7 he's using water flowing from us as a metaphor for the Holy Spirit. And we know this because John said, now this he said about the Spirit, out of your belly, King James Version, out of your heart, ESV, will flow rivers of living water. John said that he was speaking about the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive. They hadn't yet, but in the future, the believers are going to receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. The Holy Spirit was not going to be given in this manner until Jesus is glorified, until His passion, His death, burial, and resurrection Now these are powerful verses regarding the place of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life. And every believer, because of their faith in Christ and the regeneration or new birth that happens when you're born again in Christ, you will receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 1, while they were staying with them, he ordered them, this is Jesus, don't leave Jerusalem, but you wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John baptized with water, speaking of John the Baptist, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So after he ascends, he tells his believers, go back to Jerusalem, wait, you're going to receive the promise from the Father. John, he baptized with water, you're going to get a a spirit baptism. So this happens in Acts 2 verse 1 in the day of Pentecost. They were all assembled in one place, in one mind, in one accord. And there came a sound from heaven as of a mighty rushing wind. And remember, spirit and wind are interchangeable uh, to these people. So the spirit moves in like a wind. It flows and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And they all began to speak with tongues. And the Holy Spirit came upon them uh, as tongues like as a fire. And this supernatural promise of the Father that Jesus gave comes in. And and all these people hear uh, these Jews speaking in their native tongues because Pentecost is a feast. It's It's a feast that happens every year. And Acts says there's these people, there's Parthians and Medes and Elamites and all these people from around the world that come in Jerusalem and they hear these people worshiping God in their native tongue and they know these people are from Jerusalem. How do they know my language? How is this even possible and so they, they ask Peter this question and Peter launches into this sermon where he starts telling the story of the whole Old Testament and David and and moves on into Christ and he says this same Jesus whom you crucified as God made both Lord and Christ and they were pricked in their hearts they were convicted they looked at Peter and Said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all those who are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. It's the baptism of the Holy Spirit promised from Jesus. And it is central to the new birth experience. It is the fulfillment of the teaching. Of Jesus in John chapter 3 when we receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit we become the temple of God Now, the Jews were really familiar with this language the temple is where God dwelt you had the, the different stages and back here in this back room the Holy of Holies or the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant at one time was and the high priest once a year would go in on the Day of Atonement and he had to offer his sacrifices because if he's not pure, God will kill him in a flat second. And so the high priest goes in there and the Shekinah glory, the manifest presence of God comes down. It sits upon the mercy seat of the ark where the angels, the cherubims are facing each other and God comes down and this is where He dwells inside the temple. God dwells in the temple. This is. Temple language is all through the Scripture. The Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is a temple. That is temple language. It's where God dwells. In the temple, there is imagery of that reflects and makes people think back to the garden because the garden is where God dwells. And now the temple is where the people of God can come and offer sacrifice, cleanse themselves, and meet the presence of God. So Paul knows all this, and Paul knows his people know this. And so he says, Do you not know that your body... He's talking about our physical body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. Whom you have from God, you are not your own. When we have the Holy Spirit in us, we are the temple of God. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is why it's often said that Christianity has no geographical center. You don't have to take a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to become more spiritual or more holy. I'd like to go someday just for the historical aspect of it. Just because I like history, but I don't expect to go to Jerusalem and be any closer to God. God dwells in me. The idea of... Israel as this little plot of land in the Middle East, is that somehow being sacred or holy today? The whole idea in the Old Testament was that the glory of God in the New Covenant will cover the earth. His glory will cover the entire earth. That there is no central place to Christianity now. That wherever you are is where God is. We go to church, we say that we're going to the house of God. I've heard it say, let's go to the house of God. But according to Scripture, we are the house of God. We go to a place of worship like this to join together with other believers, and we should. But our thinking is unbiblical if we think that we're going to come here and meet God. I just got to go to church so I can talk to God, so I can meet God. No, the people of God gather together to worship Him. But if you have His Holy Spirit, you are the temple of God. You are God-possessed. We talk about, people talk about being demon-possessed, and that certainly is a, is a real thing, and there is a difference between oppression and possession. There's a lot of people who are oppressed by uh, the powers of darkness, but there is such thing as being possessed. Uh, I have in a handful of times in my life dealt with demon-possessed people, and when you do, there is no question about it. Uh, about three years ago, I was back in Illinois and I was in service I think I was I I was preaching there that night and uh, a woman came forward for prayer during the service and I was on the platform pastor was there and he motioned to me and we went down and prayed for her and as soon as I went down and prayed for her, um, there was no doubt I didn't wonder I knew she was she was possessed it had been a long time since I dealt with that. And she, there was no outward manifestation. Just the the powers of darkness were there like you could, you could cut it. You could feel it. I turned around. I didn't say a word. Pastor walked over to me as we were climbing up the steps and he said, that woman is demon possessed. I said, I know. Uh, he picked it up. I picked it up. We didn't say a, w- a word to each other. Um, that doesn't happen often, uh, but it does happen it is is a real thing so we talk about that but how often do we talk about being God possessed if the powers of darkness because Satan and God are not equals like what is the opposite of the devil it's not God or what is the opposite of God well there is no opposite of God God has no opposite equal Uh, Satan is a created being uh, who is already damned and condemned and he is a million times more powerful than you are without the presence of God in your life. With the power of God in your life, we don't have to fear Him. Uh, We don't have to fear the powers of darkness. They can attack us, they can buffet us, they did Paul, but we don't have to fear those. Uh, Because why? I'm God-possessed. I have the Spirit of God inside me. And you you can't touch that. There is no equal to that. The ramifications of this are life-changing. He is always with us regardless of our feelings or our emotions. So there are times in our walk with God where we feel that God is near to us. We pray and the words flow and I just feel like I could ask God for anything and He would answer. And then there are other times where God feels like He's a million miles away. We pray like, we, we feel like we pray and the words hit the ceiling and bounce back and we say, Where is God in all of this? And even though we know God is omnipresent, filling all time and all space, sometimes it feels like He is nowhere to be found. And any time I have the opportunity to talk to new believers, because for years I, I, my ministry in a local church dealt with and focused on new believers, and I, I love getting with people who are new to faith. That's my passion is people who are new to faith. And talk to them. I always remind them that you may be on a spiritual honeymoon right now, but you mark my words, there will come a time when you can't feel God where you just feel like He's a million miles away. And I remind them, remember that when this time comes, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. And when you can't feel Him, you have to have faith in Him. When you can't trace Him, you have to trust Him. You have to... A mark of Christian maturity is learning to not live off your emotions and your feelings, but simply have that faith that God is in me, whether I feel Him or not, my emotions are not a barometer of God's presence in my life. He does not live on a turnstile door going in and out of my heart according to whether or not I'm having a bad day or whether or not I'm having bad emotions or I stumbled or I fell. No, He came into us to live and to stay. Sometimes it feels, though, that He is nowhere to be found. But the heart can't be trusted. The Bible says the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. And new believers and seasoned saints alike need to be reminded that He is always with us. Our emotions will betray us, but His Word can be trusted. And if you walk with God long enough, it's not a matter of if, but when, you're going to walk through the dry, barren desert. And it's best during these times that you do not make major life decisions. If you've got to get up and plod through that dry time, plod through it, you probably aren't in the state of mind to make major life decisions because the desert, the one thing the desert demands is faithfulness. And that's the time to be consistent. That's the time to be regular in our attendance and our Bible reading and just coming to his house and staying close to his people. It's in the desert when I don't feel like it's when I need to do it the most. If there's any time that we ought to be saturated with God's presence, it's in the desert. Because those dry times are not to be despised, they are to be respected for what they are. God's way of stretching and building our faith. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the greatest experience in life. His Spirit is transformational. It shapes our lives in ways that we didn't think would be possible without His influence. Now, Christianity is splintered over the past 500 years it's splintered into all these different groups and denominations who have some different ideas and they've stopped at various points along the road of revealed truth and some of those movements stop before receiving uh, the knowledge or acceptance that there is such a thing as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There are good sincere men and women who strive to live out their faith without the power and blessing and, and action and work of the holy spirit in their life. And the question isn't do I have to be baptized with his holy spirit? The question is why wouldn't I want to be because it's a blessing and it's a promise to be received with thanksgiving. Coming to faith in Christ is a miraculous event in our lives. We were dead in trespasses and sin and his spirit drew us to him, filled us and made us alive. Scripture says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace have I been saved. Our response to his call was faith in Jesus Christ. And our faith began a journey where we were justified by faith, through the blood of Jesus, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of God. Now I said all those things about justification because what we hear a lot about is Romans 5.1, therefore being justified by faith. And justification by faith, that my faith in Christ as the Son of God, as the Messiah, as the Divine One, that faith justifies us. Yes, it does. But Paul, just as he said in Romans 5.1, that we are justified by faith. Paul also said we're justified, this is like seven or eight verses later, justified through the blood of Jesus, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of God. Paul ties justification to faith, the blood of Christ, the name of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are all tied to justification. This was accomplished by our obedience to the gospel, identifying with His death, His burial, and His resurrection through our repentance, our being buried with Christ in baptism. Romans 6, I am buried with Christ in baptism, but I'm glad I don't stay in that water, both physically and metaphorically. I'm glad that somebody pulled me out of that water. I'm glad that God raised me up out of that, and He allows me to have newness of life. This is the glory of the gospel. He redeems us, He justifies us, He adopts us all through the majesty of Calvary. It all goes back, the new birth all goes back to the gospel. My final observation on John 3. You can be religious and not born again. Going to church does not save you. It doesn't regenerate you. Going to church doesn't cause you to have life Only God, through Christ Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, causes you to be born again. We are saved. This is the the heart of the Reformation. We talk about the five solas of the Reformation. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. You can read your Bible. You can read good books. You can listen to podcasts. You can give your time and money to good causes. You can feed the poor and care for the hurting. We should do all those things. But none of that saves us. Being religious does not save you. Hell will be filled with religious people who did good works. I've heard people make jokes about, Mom, you're going to go to hell for that. Or, you know, I mean, just people will make light of, 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 of this because of what somebody does. Nobody goes to hell for being a bank robber or a murderer or any other sin. Nobody goes to hell for that. It's not, well I was a good person so I go to heaven. It, you don't go to heaven because you're a good person. You don't go to heaven because you're, your lack of sin. You don't go to heaven because you weren't a murderer and that person goes to hell because they were. That's not how Scripture, that's not how God works. I am saved because He regenerates me. He gives me a new heart, a new life. I am a new creature in Christ. I still have an old sinful nature. Now, if I continue to do those things, it's a pretty good indication that there was no new birth there, that there was no experience there. Something there didn't take hold and take place. But you're not going to heaven or hell. You're not going to, be, you're not going to spend, and I, I even hesitate to use those terms because in terms of going to heaven, you know, eternity and eternal life is something that's going to be enjoyed throughout all creation. But I don't get eternal life because of how good of a person I am. It has nothing to do with that. I will be a good person, I will be a better person, my works will be there, but that's not what saves me. Those are a byproduct, those are a a result of new birth. New birth results in new life, new attitude, new hopes, new actions, new ways of living. But none of that saves us. I am saved by the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus who gives you new life and a new birth and a new chance in life. You don't do it, He does. In John 11, when Lazarus dies, and they're all saying, Jesus, if you'd have been there, he wouldn't have died, and you know, his sisters are there, and I just get the impression Jesus is not in a hurry. He just like moses his way through this. And they say, you know, when he says, roll the stone away, um, and I remember reading this as a kid or hearing them talk about it, and in King James language it says, but, you know, but Jesus, he stinketh. And I just thought that was hilarious. I don't know. I just thought he stinketh was like the funniest thing i would ever read. But that's what they were really saying. They're like, Jesus, we're going to roll this stone away. And he, like, he's been dead for three days. He's going to stink. Like this is going to be bad. Just roll the stone away. And he just simply says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes out and following phrase he says now loose him and let him go unbind him because he's like he's wrapped and I, I don't know if like he like jumps out as a mummy like can he walk i don't i always picture like the mummy coming out of the tomb but whatever the case lazarus was dead and now he's alive jesus gave the resurrection lazarus didn't resurrect himself jesus gave the resurrection lazarus receives it jesus causes new life lazarus lives again because of it. Jesus decided to give Lazarus a second chance, and Lazarus enjoys the gift. Jesus gives the miracle, and Lazarus acts the miracle. Jesus gives new life, and Lazarus goes on doing the living. But Lazarus isn't the cause of any of that. He's the recipient of every one of that. We are no different. If you're sitting here this morning Either being justified, declared righteous in Christ, or maybe you're not there yet. Maybe it's not that, you're not at that point. But regardless, if we are regenerated, born again, receive new life, there ought to be a daily, eternal gratitude that causes us to be humble and worshipful because what Jesus did, He caused us to be born again. He yelled out, Jeffrey, come forth, and I get to be the recipient of that new life. I want you to see that it is not only Jesus who talks about being born again. The New Testament is filled with language that speaks of this experience. Being born again is not a separate or different transaction. We are born again. We are given a new life and a new new nature and the New Testament is full of this language. It uses different metaphors to describe how God in Christ through His Spirit regenerates us and makes us a new creation. Paul writes, or excuse me, Peter writes a letter to people that he calls elect exiles. And he opens the letter by blessing God and telling us that we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I'll close with these verses. So in 1 Peter 1, Peter is writing this letter and he starts off by saying, "To the elect, elect exiles, that are in the dispersion, and this is the people of God who have been scattered throughout the world because of persecution and, and all of this. And 1 Peter is a letter about persecution. He is writing to comfort the people who are being persecuted because of their faith in Christ. So after he does his two verses of greetings, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us, Notice that phrase. That's very important. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. In two verses, Peter talks about being born again, having a hope, he ties in the gospel, the resurrection of Christ, and he ties in eternal life, the inheritance that is imperishable. In two verses, he just goes through all that and says, Blessed be God, caused us to be born again to a living hope that is imperishable because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just how the biblical writers could write that thick, they could say so much. I've read books entire books by people and I get done with them like I don't even know what they really tried to say like it was just and here Peter in two verses is just saying so much so that's verses 3 and 4 and verses 23 so he's already talked about being born again in verse 23 he says it again since you have been born again not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass The grass withers, the flower falls, the Word of God remains forever. He's quoting Isaiah 40 here. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of God stands forever. He's kind of quoting and paraphrasing what Isaiah said. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. Jesus said, If you keep My Word, you will never see death. Your eternal life is secured through the living and abiding Word of God. I know I told this story a while back, but... I was teaching a Purpose Institute class and i it was a trick question because I knew how, how everybody's minds in the class had been conditioned. So I said, how is it that Peter says that we are born again? And then everybody jumped on Acts 2.38 and they were on that. I'm like, well Peter didn't actually use new birth language there to talk about baptism in the Holy Spirit. That's not where Peter talks about that, he said, how does Peter use the language of being born again and how it happens. I said, what what does he say? It's just, that's all they had. They had had one bullet in their gun and that was it. There was a guy over here to my left who was a new convert. He wasn't even from that, he was from another church and he was a new convert and I knew he was a new convert. He sat there and he said, Peter said, we're born again through the living and abiding word of God. Man, I wish I'd have had a $100 bill to handle. Well, that'd be wrong to hand out money for right answers. But I wanted to give him something. I'm like, man, you are new to faith and you just nailed it. It's like, that's how Peter said you're born again. It's because his word. Remember, we're not talking about something you find in a dictionary. The eternal Word. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and the Word was manifest and became flesh and dwelt among us. That is the Word of God and that is how we're born again. It all goes back to Jesus Christ because His Word abides forever and never fails. It's because of that that you can live forever, never die, eternal life because you were born again through the living and abiding Word of God. Jesus, thank You for Your Word, that You are the eternal Word. We just read it, the grass withers, the flower fades, but Your Word stands forever. Oh, we are indebted this morning to You. We don't have a debtor's ethic. We don't try to repay You. We'll never do that, no matter how many good works we accomplish. We simply worship You with everything we have. And Lord, we know that our worship is not in this life only. And if you don't return in your second coming again before our life is over, you may and you may not. But if we pass from this life and death, we know that we will live and rise again. And that is our hope. That is our eternal hope, is that we will live again. And then in all of eternity, Lord, if there's anything that we do in all eternity, it's going to be that we get to worship you that we get to bask in your presence, be near to you, know you in ways that we cannot know you now. That is the glory of eternity. Nothing else matters. We see through a glass darkly. We don't know, Lord, what all that entails, but we do know that we'll be with you. Your writer said that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that's our hope today is that in all the mass chaos and confusion of this world, it's all temporary, but we have an eternal hope that we will live with you forever, to be worshipers of you. Now Lord, I ask you this morning that you would touch our hearts. I know that your word said that your word won't return void, that it will accomplish that which you have purposed. So Lord, touch this morning, grant us faith and direction this week. Go with us, let us feel your spirit near. Lord, grant us direction, grant us wisdom this week as we make decisions and choices and walk in the fog of this world be with us we ask this this morning in christ's name amen god bless you this morning